Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today, our interviewers include myself, I am Elizabeth, a graduate student, and... Hi, I'm Nidhi, and I'm a research aide. So today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Diana Thomas. She's a professor of mathematical sciences at the uh, United States Military Academy at West Point. She has over 25 years of research experience focusing on nutrition and obesity-related modeling. She has worked with large, complex, and high-dimensional data sets and co-invented the remote weight loss program, Smart Loss, which has been clinically applied globally to guide and improve individual patient weight loss adherence through smartphone technology and many, many other exciting things I will probably hear a little bit about over the next minutes. And so welcome to this podcast, Dr. Thomas, and thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. All right. So to get us started, we would really like to hear more about your early career, perhaps including a bit of your PhD at the Georgia Institute of Technology and your postdoctoral fellowship at the U.S. Military Academy. And a bit sort of like uh, to hear how you got interest in the research area that you're working on now. <laughs> so the, these are great questions. So I have to back up a little bit more than that. So uh, I was an undergrad um, before I was an undergrad at University of Montana. I was inspired by my high school math teacher. And I thought I want to be a high school math teacher just like him. So his name is Fen Wilkinson. And I think that's how a lot of people are inspired to go to grad school or whatever you do by some teacher that you've had. And so my initial thought was I'm going to be secondary ed majoring in mathematics and going back and teaching high school. Um, but then uh, my third year at University of Montana, I thought, well, I think I, I really like mathematics. And I think teaching is actually extremely hard at the high school level. There's a lot of challenges there. And so my third year, I went to a research experience for undergrads in University of Colorado Boulder. And there I was, everybody was going to grad school. Uh, they were going to get their PhDs. I saw a, a video uh, by Michael Barnsley at Georgia Tech on chaos and fractals. And so I thought, oh, I want to go there then. So I applied to Georgia Tech. They accepted my application quickly and I didn't apply anywhere else. I went to Georgia Tech. So that's how I ended up at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech was a traditional type classical mathematics place. You you learn mathematics, everything surrounded by mathematics. I had great professors there. And so my dream changed and I thought I'm going to uh, become a research mathematician and end up doing solving hard problems in mathematics that maybe not a lot of people care about, but they're beautiful in the, by themselves. And so, so then we were applying for jobs, uh, all of our cohort. And it may surprise you because we say that there's not enough mathematicians, but we have a lot of math PhDs in the United States. And we always joke around and say, if you get your math PhD, never forget how to say, would you like some fries to go with that, ma'am? Because you might struggle to find a job. And so that year was one of the first years there was a crunch in the job market for academia. And postdocs at Georgia Tech were struggling to find jobs. There was a postdoc I remember who got a job at Macon, Georgia in a community college. And so you start to realize like, okay, maybe things are not going to work out. So I applied to maybe a hundred jobs in academia in math departments. And I was, I had two job offers. One was seven eighths of one position for one year. Somebody worked out the fractions on that. That didn't sound so good to me. So I had this colonel in the United States army. He reached out to me uh, at the joint math meetings and he seemed to indicate I had the job at West Point. 
And um, I came back and told my mother, I think I have this job at West Point. It's a three-year position. And so it's much more solid and secure than, and I'm still alive in academia. So that's how I started. And I, indeed, Colonel Arnie gave me the position to West Point. And it was a NRC fo- uh, fellowship to work with the Army Research Labs. And I worked there for two years and I met my husband and he was in New Jersey. He had just finished at NJIT and we decided to get married. And I wanted a job, not only a, a job, but I wanted a job in New Jersey. <laughs> so it made it even harder. And I received a position at the New Jersey City University. So in my second year, I tried to cast out the the net the second year in case I don't get a job, I can try again the third year. So I was there for two years. And one of my colleagues from West Point, we were all temporary. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But he ended up at Montclair State, which was next door. And he said, you know, we have a job opening here. And the position was more attractive. Teaching load was lower. And so I moved to Montclair two years after, and I was there for 17 years. So that's my trajectory. In the meantime, I was doing mathematics. I published on um, combinatorial games. So it's a lot of fun, and I still teach those courses. Um, But I'm not doing research in that anymore. But yes, some of the, it was pure mathematics. And then in 2008, I went to a a conference at the NIH and I met these obesity experts. And the conference, I went to it because one of my students had published a paper and the reviewer was at the NIH and asked, invited us to come. And so um, I met all these people and they started asking, hey, can you do this for us? Do you think you could do that for us? So I said, I, no, I don't think I, I can. Actually, I'm not a statistician. I And over time, I started saying, okay, let me, I got interested. And I started saying, I think I can look, let, t- let me take a look. And so um, my research area just completely changed. And by 2011, I had my first NIH grant. And I got my second one about a month later from the first one. And then I realized I'm not never going to do pure math again as research. It's probably impossible. And so I jumped from one area to the other completely by 2011. So it's a strange pathway, but I've been doing nothing else. That transition was rocky, but uh, it was uh, it's not easy. We say we want math people in the biological sciences. It's not easy. Yeah, no, I can see that that was a, a very, like you said, rocky trajectory. But thank you so for sharing because I think uh, it, it it aligns a bit with the experience that many young professionals and trainees are, are going through right now with sort of like what is happening globally and the changes in the sort of global state of research and opportunities. So I think in a way, this is very encouraging for all of us listening. Yeah, it was really wonderful to hear about your career trajectory, Dr. Thomas. So moving on to your current role, your current present day role, could you please tell us more about your work as a professor of mathematical sciences at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point? What does your usual day-to-day life look like? That's a that's a wonderful question because I think it's the best job in the world. But of course, everybody's paired to the best job in the world because they think they like those things. So I love the things I love about West Point is I do love getting up really early and I love working out. And those two things are kind of part of the DNA at West Point. West Point is a different kind of institution because it's not our typical academic institution. Our students are trained to become the next leaders in the nation. They're they're, uh, trained in the military. They're going to be army officers when they graduate. So a lot of what we do, it's like they're, even their grades are not just grades, academic grades. They're a percentage of it comes from academics, a percentage comes from leadership and a percentage comes from physical fitness. So, um, you know, that also I really like because 
you know, you watch students go to college at the undergrad level and you see them transform over the four years where they discard their health, their outlook on health, and they look towards just getting through their college degree. And it's disheartening to see that. But the emphasis on physical fitness is pretty high at West Point. So you have all these checks and balances to keep folks kind of stay in that that health boundary and take care of themselves. West Point has 60 to 70% of the faculty are like postdocs. They uh, rotate in and out in a two-year, three-year position. And 60 to 70% are military officers. So they're coming after either a degree, a master's degree or a PhD. And so there's a huge transitionary state at West Point. Um, you don't have, as a typical institution, for example, at Montclair State, where I became a full professor there, if I stayed there, I could have stayed there till, you know, end of life. And once you hire someone, you don't need that person filled, uh, that position filled for another 30, for 30 plus years. And so this is different here because you have a high transition, not just in the, the faculty, but also in the leadership. Our soup stays for five years. That's like the president of the university. Our dean stays for five years. So they're they're all temporary like this. So it's great in some way. There's a lot of energy. Can you imagine if your department was filled with only postdocs and graduate students? <laughs> That's what it's like. Everybody's young. They're energetic. They have lots of ideas they're coming with. I call myself their postdoc because every new crowd that comes in, I'm learning from whatever they're bringing to the institution. So I love all of that. On and my role there is to mentor. My primary role is to mentor. And um, as a senior faculty member, I am permanent and I have the institutional memory because I'm, I'm staying there while everybody else is rotating. But um, my job is to make sure that my civilian faculty get their next job and that the junior military and the senior military that are there get what they need. Um, maybe they want to go to grad school. Maybe they want to transition out of the military and apply for something else. Or maybe they're trying to do something else uh, while they're in the, you know, while they're back at the big army. And so all of it on a daily basis, my office is flooded with meetings, but they're good meetings. Like they, like uh, Sarab and I talked about how we have to enjoy what we're doing. So I enjoy what I'm doing. So it doesn't feel like work. That's why I say West Point's the best job in the world. Cause I go to work, but I don't feel like I, I went to work. The department's my family. They're my friends. I, I laugh with them. I cry with them. We socialize. And that's something I wanted in a job too. I wanted to go to a place that um, my colleagues are also my friends. And so that also makes it really warm. And of course, the cadets, the students. Um, it's really uh, amazing to be able to touch the life of someone who you watch. I've watched them since I taught there in the 90s. You watch them achieve greatness in ways that I don't think uh, we see at traditional institutions where they are positioned to be leaders. That's what they were trained for. And so just seeing their growth and where they're going and knowing that I had some part in it, hopefully not detrimental, <laughs> was makes me feel good. Thanks so much for sharing all this. And I was thinking you conduct research in a very ever-changing environment. As you said, there are faculties who are coming and going and they stay only for a couple of years. So talking more about your research as a mathematician in the field of biological sciences, in your perspective, what are the main challenges or key focus areas in the field of nutrition and obesity right now? I think like any other field, um, Advances are made so quickly and adapting to these advances is tough. So let me give you just one example. Have you ever used a survey? Give me an example of a survey that you've used, maybe a, a survey that's other people are using too, that's been validated. I will say NHANES 
have used like a social determinants of health, uh, depression questionnaires. Like there's questionnaires that are out there. All these questionnaires that have been tested, they use Likert. You know, they actually have a scale. And the prevailing belief is that it's easier to work with than asking people freeform text. Just imagine if you had to take N. Haynes and you asked people freeform text questions. It would just be overwhelming to get all that data back. Who would make sense of that? And in fact, you just look at the uh, dietary guidelines. They have public comments. You know, they used to have public comments in the thousands. Last year, last year they had 38,000 public comments. Who's going to look through 38,000 public comments? However, today we, you know, it's been a fast growing field and is evolving all the time. We have natural language processing that allows us to look at that freeform text and really make sense of what people are feeling and even group that data. Like I can tell you there's different groups of people that feel differently and I can tell you who they are and what they're thinking. Um, when we write something down, we leave a little behind of ourselves. And I call uh, my friend calls it personality residue. And so um, there's so much to be gained from freeform text. Yet these questionnaires are still liquored. There's not a single freeform text question on them. And so convincing people to try to change those is hard. There's growing pains with all these changes going on. I think it applies in so many fields because this idea of freeform text, even even at the academic level, when we're thinking on exams and evaluations and things like that, it's always like, okay, easier to grade um, 40 A's for teaching assistants, easier to grade a, a multiple choice than a free form text. But yeah, then yes, a lot of information is out the window. And so following up on that and then your previous comments on mentorship as one of your main roles, what are some of the skills that you have learned sort of like during your uh, academic trajectory as a PhD student, postdoc, etc., that, that has you know contributes to your work right now in the Atlantic person. So there's content-based skills, and then there's life skills. Um, I think the the life skills are probably more important than content-based skills. One of my mentors, Steve Heimsfield, once said, you know, if someone has a PhD, they have con- you know they have content, they have content knowledge in that discipline. The most important thing after having that content knowledge, which they have with a PhD, is being able to work with them, the collegiality and that spirit of being able to work with someone. And also, I think for me personally, navigating a field that dominated by people who don't look like me. So that has also been like, what kind of skills do I need? And I'm still building those skills on a daily basis. The idea of, you know, building leadership skills, you can work on these things and and become better. Uh, at navigating professional social settings. A lot of what we do is social settings and what we perceive someone else is capable of. There's a great book. It's called Presumed Incompetent. It's a rec- <laughs> it's, I recommend a, 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 this um, book because it's, it's a, you know, um, if you get something on your student evaluations that says really knows her stuff, what does that tell me? Well, I, I hope so because I don't think I got my degree out of a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> I'm teaching here at West Point or wherever I'm teaching, you know, hopefully they didn't, I didn't fool them. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's, thank you for your validation, but I should know my stuff. Um, I'm glad I proved to you I know my stuff, but why did you presume I was incompetent? 
And navigating that has been one of the toughest things, I think, for many, many individuals. And so in my mentorship, I I just do a lot of discussions with my faculty about this. Like, how do you navigate when you feel like you're presumed incompetent? And so I, I've leaned on my friends as role models um, in that and have a network of friendships that I rely on. And I also rely on books. So presumed incompetent is great. Uh, a book that was recently recommended to me by Dr. Leah Wiggum is The 15 Commitments to Conscious Leader of Conscious Leadership. That's an excellent book. How to Say It for Women, great book. You know, my male students love that book too. So it's, it's not, it says for women, but it's it's for anybody who struggles in that moment that you're paralyzed. Like, how do I say something? How do I compose myself? And there's a, a I have a book list that I kind of give to, to faculty when they're in the office. And that book list I've learned from. Another one that I really like is Ask For It. Ask For It is, um, they even have worksheets in it where they you can actually sit down. And this is great for negotiating for a job. But also when I read the book, it was just negotiating with my dean. You know, be ready to to have that negotiation and bargaining chip in your hand when you go to talk to your dean or anybody who has, you know, you're going to ask something for. Um, one thing's sure, if you don't ask for it, you won't get it. That area, I think, um, you know, content knowledge, you can learn from YouTube videos. You can sit down, down and learn things with a pencil and paper. For content knowledge, with a skill set I've got uh, that I think my math department gave me is how to learn something. Um, that's how we learn in mathematics. You take a book. You line by line, you go with a pencil and you read it and understand it. So that skill is the skill that I've used more than the content they've given me in graduate school, the ability to learn something new. But the other stuff, I think it's, a, it's they call it soft skills, but they, that's a bad set of words for that. It's such yeah. an important like you can have all the content knowledge you want if you can't navigate those social situations. And some people call it politics, but I don't like dismissing it like that. It's real life. Yeah, with real consequences. Yeah, with real consequences. <laughs> and, and a little bit connecting those things with your uh, previous comment on, on how hard it is to have something new implemented in research, like when you were talking about the surveys. Do you use some of these skills in this, I don't want to say soft skills, but these, let's say, leadership skills into helping your research be implemented uh, for other groups or, or in, the, in the research world? I think we all we all do, right? Um, when even when you give a talk, yet you're enthused by what you're talking about, and you want everyone else to be enthused by what you're talking about. Even when you're just disseminating your research, how you disseminate that is probably really important. But definitely, yes. How do you gain consensus with a group of people? How do you, when you don't have consensus, how do you make sure the temperature stays down, and that you can have good conversations? Um, how do you have difficult conversations? So yeah, I, de I definitely, it's, you know, the difficult ones are the hard ones, right? Or maybe you want to set up boundaries. Um, all of these things are really super important um, to navigate research. They're not independent. They're not independent of just doing research. Yeah, no, I can see. I, this is great because I think the conversation could go for hours and hours and sort of like how to connect uh, both set of skills and grow, make them grow. Uh, within the, like how do you the sort of like understanding the how we work uh, in terms of our social network or our co-workers and researchers and, and how to implement that also in, or use that to inform our research I think is also sort of important um, but I think Nidhi you're you're going with the next question 
Yeah, thank you so much. So I guess my next question for you is, you know, like in real life, you have to have these difficult conversations and your PhD degree and your postdoctoral fellowship taught you the contextual skills. Um, but is there anything, any advice that you've received from your mentors or previous supervisors that you've held on to? Uh, yes. So my thesis advisor, Dr. Shuni Chow, I wrote my first paper. Uh, I wrote it with colleagues in the other graduate students. I came to him proudly. I showed him my paper and he said, not good. And he pushed it back at me. And he said, I, my face must've looked how I felt at that moment, but he said, I cannot tell you something is good when it's not good. And, uh, don't worry, you're young. This won't hurt you in the long run. And I know what he was saying. You can do better than this. Um, when you publish, you, you know, don't just publish to publish, publish really good stuff. And he he used to tell me that. So that's really good advice that when you publish, it should be good. The other thing I hear a lot from my um, other mentor in the obes obesity world is Steve Himesfield. He um, likes to say, die, I've seen this before. So if I come to him with one of these soft skill type problems, I'll say, Steve, this is happening to me. I don't know how to navigate it. This is horrible. And he goes, calm down. I've seen this before. And so, you know, he'll tell me a story and I'll think, wow, okay. So he's still Steve Himesfield, even though he's encountered this. He's still this mentor that I really value. And understanding that these are things that happen in life. They're not that they happen to me as a victim. They happen to everyone. and I'm building up this repertoire of, I've seen this before. So when my faculty come to my office, I, they sit down with me and they spill. I say, I've seen this before. And here's what happened. And here's what I would have done differently with hindsight. And here's what I suggest. That helps. And so now when I have difficult things happen, I think one thing I think, here's something new. I've not seen this before, but now I've seen this. And I can tell my faculty, I've seen this before. <laughs> Here's what you do. So I think even when something's really difficult and it's got you down to your knees and you're, you know, you think I'm not going to get beyond this. It's going to ruin my career. I'm going to quit. I'm going to do these things. Pick yourself up and think, this is just another one of those. I've seen this before. And five to 10 years from now, you'll be telling that story to somebody else who's going to benefit from it. And it helps you get through that moment. Wow, this is all very inspirational, and I wish we had more time for the conversation, but we need to wrap up. But before we wrap up, uh, this is like a tradition, closing tradition in this podcast. We ask our guests if they have any worst or best things about their jobs that they would like to spill some beans on. Worst thing, I think all math faculty would say grading, but I'm not sure it's the worst thing because I like to see the improvements my students are making. Um at this age, I don't have a worse thing anymore. There's, I love everything about my job. The best thing about my job is the, are the people. I, I told you that we have temporary people. So they leave and my heart breaks every three years when I see them leaving and the new offices come, the new nameplates come on there. And I think I'm just going to not like these new people because I miss the old people who were there. And for a while, I'll walk down the hall and I think that was Brian Adams' office. How dare they take Brian Adams' office? But, you know, the new people that come in are just as fabulous as the people who left. And so the best thing about my job is the people. Wow, that was a very nice uh, closing. And so <laughs> with this, I, I'll just have to uh, uh, thank you so very much, Dr. Thomas, for sharing with us 
all your experience, everything that you've done so far and book recommendations. And so everyone else, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and staying tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. Thanks.